Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week was the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom and how it failed by a wide margin. The race was called just 50 minutes after the polls closed. And how did Newsom beat the recall? Well, there was a huge Democratic turnout, and he had the perfect foil in the leading Republican candidate, Larry Elder. The rise of Elder helped the Newsom campaign turn the race into a more traditional choice election and motivated voters to get out to the polls. This story had an interesting trajectory as it started off as a long shot, became unexpectedly competitive, and ended up right where it started with a blowout. For more on all this, we'll speak to David Siders, national political reporter at Politico. Yeah, well, I think that there was a point earlier in this the, the summer where there was a concern for Democrats about turnout and whether Democrats were even aware that there was an election going on. And if they were, would they be as motivated as Republicans? And so I think you saw Newsom do two things. First, he stepped in on COVID regulations in a really aggressive way. And mask and vaccine mandates, especially in California, are very popular. So that drew a lot of attention to him because so much public focus is on COVID right now. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to people's right to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression. We said yes to women's fundamental constitutional right to decide for herself what she does with her body and her fate and future. And and the other thing is that he benefited from this huge gift of Larry Elder emerging as the top Republican opponent. So instead of an up or down vote on Newsom, he was able to make this more of a traditional choice election. And in California, a choice election between a Democrat and a Republican statewide is pretty predictable. I heard, uh, you know, one of the pundits on TV put it this way, that Newsom for the longest time was just punching in the air, nothing really to hit. And then Larry Elder came along and kind of was vaulted as the number one prospect there to replace him. And then he had that foil. He was able to make it, as you mentioned, that kind of one-on-one comparison and obviously painted him to the farthest right that he could, basically as another President Trump. Yeah, and let's be fair, the uh, Elder, he didn't need to be painted all that much. He he was a grab bag of Republican far-right kind of points. So things like suggesting that the slave owners might be owed reparations, that opposing minimum wage, those kind of things are, are antithetical to where the California electorate is. So when you say paint him, I mean, he had the accurate information to use, I think, that the painting, as you point out, came in the money that Newsom was able to spend to elevate Elder. So Elder couldn't have done it on his own. He didn't have that much money, but Newsom could put millions of dollars behind telling Californians who they were voting against. You know, one of the interesting things that I was uh, seeing through all, all this, uh, so, you know, we see vote totals right now, 64% no, 36% yes. That pretty close to the election that Newsom had against John Cox when he was first elected governor. Very, very close. So overall, it seems like really nobody in the state changed their mind. Democrats and Republicans coming in at very similar numbers. So 
in the end, it was kind of a huge waste of time and money, really. I, I think the state is going to have to pay to a tune of $300 million, I think, you know, when, when all is said and done. So this is going to be a big taxpayer cost, too. Well, sure. But think of all the uh, political professionals, the TV advertising money. The TV executives need to feed their children, too. So um, <laughs> right. there's a contribution to the, the economy here. <laughs> yeah, it was expensive and politically, uh, I think, a waste. And for Republicans, I think in worse shape now than they were before the election, just having this this drubbing behind them. I, yeah. I mean, it was really, it, it, like I said, in the end, a very vocal minority that played out exactly the same way when Gavin Newsom was first brought into office. And, you know, and the, obviously the recall proponents definitely benefited from all that extra time to collect signatures. You know, COVID plays such a huge thing in all of this. They got extra time to collect signatures because of COVID. That's right. And that's, uh, I think if this result had been closer, there would be a huge dissection of the Democrats' um decision not to appeal that ruling that gave them extra time. That clearly was a pivotal point in the, the campaign. You made mention in the article as well that, you know, before even all these final ballots were cast, that Newsom's advisors were already selling his campaign as a template, as a model for Democrats nationally. And we saw national figures get involved, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, President Joe Biden. But they're selling this campaign kind of as a template for the midterms. How is that working out? Well, I think the jury's out. Uh, there's some evidence that it's hard to say anything that happens in California should be replicated elsewhere. Maybe, I mean, politically, maybe with the exception of Orange County, which could be instructive to some suburban races in other parts of the country. But there is polling that shows that vaccine and mask mandates are not just popular in California. They're popular in places like Wisconsin, a battleground state. They're popular nationally. And so, and there are places where Republican governors who have resisted those mandates, we've seen their approval ratings decline. So Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, DeSantis in Florida. So there's some indication that this may be a winning message for Democrats. I think it's too early to tell. And I think that what you pointed out about the vote totals initially being so where they were along partisan lines to begin with is indicative of the idea that, that maybe the what you're arguing about or the argument you put forward may matter much less that people are already locked in their camps. You know, the people who will vote are not going to be persuaded one way or another. It's, it's all about turning out your base. So I don't know. I think the jury's out. What about the, the Trump angle? Because Gavin Newsom obviously was bringing Trump out a lot when President Biden was in California stumping with him. You know, he kept saying this is also about Trumpism. We have to fight Trumpism. So how did that play into the whole uh, whole thing? And I think that's pretty resonant for Democrats. You know, that's the turnout chime, right? You, you say Trump and that gets people excited because you look at an election like this, Republicans who want to get rid of Newsom or furious at Newsom, they were motivated to vote. And Democrats had to find something to get Democrats excited about. And frankly, it wasn't much of an affirmative case that Newsom put forward. It wasn't, I'm great for reasons A, B, or C. It's look at the alternative. And so I think that that was the message at the end. And that's the one that worked. Yeah. yeah I mean, the whole trajectory and, and, you know, David, you've been on the podcast a number of times and we talked about it. The enthusiasm gap was the main thing that Democrats were worried about. Nobody wanted to come out and vote. Nobody wanted to do it. And I guess it wasn't until Elder came along that really gave them that motivation to get out there. That's the thing that they had been fighting the whole time. You know, some people in the campaign, I, I thought it was, they had an interesting take on the public polling that put this race a lot closer a few weeks ago. And that was that 
they largely agreed with the pollsters on the enthusiasm gap and realized that their supporters were not as enthusiastic. But where they disagreed was in applying that to turnout. And the Newsom campaign believed that they could get Democrats to turn out even if they weren't enthusiastic. I think one of his advisors described it as something like taking out the trash, that, that they would just do it. And in the end, I mean, the, you're right, there's still lots of ballots to be counted, but the turnout is looking pretty strong for an off-year election. So yeah. it does seem that they were compelled to do that. And for Republicans, you know, what do they do next? Because Newsom's going to be up for re-election in just a little bit more than a year. That's why, you know, other people were like, you know, why is this even happening now? But what do they do? Uh, Larry Elder, you know, in some of his statements basically alluded saying that he'd probably run again. Um, you know, some of the other guys in there, John Cox, Kevin Falconer, they might come back again. But what does the GOP do to elevate a Republican to even stand a chance? I mean, they, they would need some type of more moderate Republican. And you've been saying it, too, you know, somebody that appeals to more than just the base. And it wasn't so long ago that Meg Whitman came along as a moderate Republican, and she was probably the right kind of moderate Republican to run in California, meaning she had gobs of her own money and not not John Cox money. I mean, not a few million dollars, many, many, many millions of dollars to spend. And she lost. But the race was not a blowout. uh, And there were times during that campaign where it seemed that she could win. So I do think they need a moderate, but I'm not sure how the party gets a moderate through the top two primary. That seems very, very difficult. And that's something the elders assent just reinforces. So where does the party go? I mean, it has a convention in a couple of weekends. I imagine you'll see, you know, this is Larry Elder's party right now if he wants it. And you'll see some very uncomfortable traditionalist Republicans trying to figure out what kind of brand they can have as a party while still trying to win some very competitive House races where Republicans are competitive. I mean, remember, Republicans picked up four House seats in California in a presidential election last year. It was a pretty good down ballot showing for them. So they're not without flickers of hope. Statewide's probably off the table, but those House races are going to be critical nationally. And I just want to end off with uh, lifting a line from your article. You know, this whole race has been a story of something that was almost a laughable long shot. It became unexpectedly competitive and then settled right where it began with Newsom prevailing in a blowout. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Here's an interesting way to look at COVID numbers. Throughout the pandemic, we've looked at three numbers to track how bad things were getting. Case counts, hospitalizations, and deaths. Hospitalizations in particular have been a key figure in assessing the severity of illness. But a new study suggests that almost half of those hospitalized have mild or asymptomatic symptoms. While some patients are admitted for serious illness, some are there unrelated to COVID and later test positive, but they're still countered toward the overall hospital numbers. For a closer look at COVID hospitalizations, we'll speak to David Zweig, contributor to The Atlantic. For much of the pandemic, we look at deaths as one measure of what's happening. And of course, deaths are accurate as far as there's a finality to them. However, they are a lagging indicator. And of course, they also don't account for people who um, were severely sick and and recovered. That's still something we want to measure. Conversely, cases... um, 
you know, are very dependent upon who is tested, when they're tested, what, you know, what types of people, is it really an accurate sample or not? So that, that's also not a great measure. So hospitals ostensibly have been a really good measure for where we are in, an, in either as a country or in an individual, you know, region as far as what the degree of, of problem is with, with, the, with the pandemic. But what I found, there's a new study that just came out, and I should mention it is in preprint, which means it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. However, the study had was of a really, really large sample size. It was done in the VA, the Veterans Administration, and it was nearly 50,000 hospital admissions in the VA. And what they found was that nearly half of all admissions that are coded as a um, that are uh, COVID hospital admission were actually for mild or even asymptomatic cases. And um, your listeners may be wondering, um, well, how is that possible? Why would people be in the hospital right, if they exactly. you know, were asymptomatic? So um, not to leave too much of a cliffhanger for you there. So, <laughs> and the answer is that there are a lot of people who go to the hospital for any number of things for in a normal time, whether maybe there's trauma from a car accident, you could break your ankle, you have appendicitis, whatever. Um, but most hospitals in the country test every single person who is admitted for COVID. It's a policy. So any, so you could arrive at the hospital for something else, then you get tested and then it turns out that you have COVID. So what the researchers found was that a significant portion of the COVID hospitalizations were for people like that, or secondarily for people who did arrive with COVID symptoms, but they were mild and they decided to admit these people anyway, because maybe it was someone who had some underlying conditions and they just wanted to play it safe or the patient complained of, um, you know, subjectively feeling short of breath, for example. But then those people never progressed into a serious illness. And that's totally interesting, you know, and you don't really think of it when you're hearing coverage of, you know, hospitalizations and how the numbers are up and, and all that. You just kind of assume that, oh, wow, if you're in the hospital, those people must be really sick. But you're right. You know, there's a range of treatments, a range of issues of why people might be there, you know, on the on the severe side, you know, you got to be intubated or something. You might need supplemental oxygen. It could be as simple as getting that steroid that everybody, uh, you know, has been proven to help out the dexamethasone. So there's a range. And, and when we're hearing a lot about coverage, we're not really hearing the differentiation between how severe it could be. That's right. And, and you know, what I would urge your listeners to think through is that so the next time you hear about COVID hospitalization numbers, be aware that according to this study, and by the way, I should mention, I also wrote an article for New York Magazine a few months back, uh, two separate studies which were peer-reviewed, and they were published by a journal put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and they, their findings echoed the findings in this study, and the pediatric population was 40 to 45 percent of those hospitalizations were also found to be incidental. Um, you know, again, meaning someone arrives at the hospital for something totally unrelated to COVID, then they are tested for COVID, and then they get, you know, a box gets checked off. That's a COVID hospitalization. So this isn't to minimize and say that there aren't people who are very sick with COVID. That's real. It's a real thing, and it's happening. But the numbers that we hear are not necessarily what many people yeah. would think that they are. And that's always been one of those difficulties throughout the pandemic is, you know, how bad really is it? A lot of it is very individualized that if the COVID-19 affects everybody so differently, 
and we have this wide spectrum of it. So it's always that curiosity. Well, how bad is it? And we hear, you know, headlines. There's one from uh, NBC News. More kids are hospitalized with COVID, but researchers aren't sure if they're sick or too. We're seeing things, you know, related to the hospital resources that we have. Idaho declared a statewide hospital resource crisis amid the latest surge. They're having to ration care right now and turn people away. And I read through one of these recent articles. Nowhere does it really say how many people that are admitted are really that bad. And I'm sure I'm sure there are some because that's what we've been seeing. But yeah, that kind of gets lost in there. You know, how bad are some of these COVID patients? I think a really important point that people, you know, need to understand is right, is is how these things are measured and what these different things we hear mean. So it's not that they are doing this, you know, trying to trick people. The reason that everyone is coded as as a COVID hospitalization, simply because they test positive, is because that's how hospitals need to treat those patients differently, perhaps isolate them in different ways. And similarly, the government uses this to track, you know, the spread of the disease. But the thing that most people interpret hospitalizations to mean, including the media, um, you know, um, sort of give the impression, is that it's not just about the spread of the disease, but hospitalizations as an indicator of severity. And that's what this um, particular study and the, also those studies that I mentioned on the pediatric admissions, that's what's so important about this, is that hospitalizations can be used as a measure of the spread of the disease, but they shouldn't necessarily be used as a measure of severity of the disease. Because again, they're finding that half of them, it's incidental. One really interesting point that a study found was that prior to January of this year, um, it was the number was roughly one third of the patients were incidental or mild course of illness. And then that number bumped up to a half after vaccines became readily available. Right. And in fact, they found that people who are vaccinated had an even higher, something like 57 percent um, were in this mild or incidental category. So this is really um, strong evidence that the vaccines are helping, that even if, if you are vaccinated, even if you show up at the hospital, your chances of your course of illness being mild um, are much higher. Yeah. And that's one of the messages that, uh, you know, public health experts have been trying to get across so much is that, yeah, the vaccines do help reduce the risk of having severe illness. Now, to be fair, there a lot of this study was done before the Delta variant became a little more widespread. I still feel it probably tracks the same way, but because, you know, all reports say that the vaccines do protect against Delta as well. But a lot of these numbers do come before that rise really took hold. You're right. However, the study did run through the very end of June, and the researchers specifically looked at this point, and they mentioned that toward the end of June, when Delta you know, was starting to take hold, they did not notice any difference in in the sort of trajectory of these metrics. So um, that is good news as far as there's no indication that that anything would change with Delta. We know that Delta is more contagious, but there doesn't appear to be any evidence that it is more virulent, meaning that it's more dangerous to any individual person should they become infected. Well, I hope that we start to look into a little bit more of these numbers and track these types of numbers and how severe that is. David Zweig, contributor to The Atlantic and New York Magazine, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter. 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.